0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study
2: and what can we do to eliminate health inequities?
0: Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science, covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez-Carroso from the University of Chicago.
1: Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis, Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis, twice a month as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, a podcast from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Sciences. This year marks nearly 50 years since Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that protects a pregnant person's right to choose to have an abortion. And yet at every turn, it seems like a new state is passing restriction on abortion and reproductive rights. It's really hard to keep track. Last fall, the Supreme Court heard a lawsuit against a 2018 Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks, a powerful challenge to Roe v. Wade, whose decision could have immediate impacts on reproductive rights and health across the country. And of course, we know that it will be poor birthing people and people of color who will be disproportionately burdened by the changes in these policies and laws. And in a really twisted double whammy, these folks and black birthing people in particular, face increasingly poor access to family planning, prenatal care and the highest rates of adverse birth outcomes and maternal mortality. To help us make sense of this pretty bleak picture and understand the history of reproductive rights and justice and how research might make a dent on these policy changes. We're joined by two phenomenal scholars, Dr. Tiffany Green, an assistant professor in the departments of population health sciences and obstetrics and gynecology at uw Medicine, and Dr. Lina Maria Murillo, assistant professor in the departments of gender, women's, and sexuality studies, history, and Latino OX studies at the University of Iowa. Thank you both for joining us. We're really excited to chat with you today.
3: Thank you for having, thank you for having us. <laughs>
0: thank you for having me. For sure. So to start off, we just wanna hear from your perspective, what's it like out there? What are people saying? How are women and, and birthing folks uh, reacting to all of this? Um, and, you know, Especially because both of you have lived in places that have held some pretty conservative views on abortion and restrictions on reproductive rights. Um, What are you hearing on the ground, Lena, why don't we start with you, um, since you've spent time in Texas where it seems like the latest battleground is taking place.
3: Sure, thanks for the question. Um, Damn Texas is, is a wild place. Uh, So they've been without, uh, like places like El Paso right so right on the US Mexico border, they've been without access to abortion since the start of COVID right so. The recent law that was uh, that went into effect in September of 2021, in some ways, did really nothing, right? Um, other than to affirm all, like what places like El Paso, which is one of, yeah, I think it's like the fourth largest city in Texas, um, we're already dealing with, right? Um, and so, when that law went into effect in September, like two weeks later. Mexico decriminalized abortion, right? Uh, And so everyone was like, what do we do with this? And people obviously Google is great, right? Because I'm sure people plugged in like Texas, Mexico, abortion. And then my name came up because I I write about this Mm. um, history of like the the history of people using um, a a transnational abortion network, right, to get um, access to abortion care before Roe um v wade right went into effect in 1973 um and so my my uh comments to to people who were asking for information um you know was you know people are already going to Mexico to get access to um abortion medication right so this is this is not something that um it will is is becoming like exacerbated after that, that law went into effect, right? And we have people already sort of crossing state lines, right? So uh, uh, various mm-hmm. kinds of borders, um, right? We see places like Oklahoma that also have very restrictive abortion laws, but their clinics are being impacted by this. New Mexico um, and and then people crossing the US-Mexico border. So it's just, it's just a really difficult, awful time. And right now, with the storm that's going on, um, I've been kind of keeping my ear to the ground and it's, it's even worse, right. Um, what little access people have to clinics there, um, with the abortion ban, right. That's, uh, the six week abortion ban, what little, you know, control people had is now completely wiped out because people like people are losing power. Um, it's just hard to maneuver, you know, drive. And so it's kind of, Yeah. Um yeah it's just it's it's pretty bleak right now. Yeah, in Texas. Yeah. Uh what about you Tiffany?
0: What are I can't remember exactly what Wisconsin's doing these days, but it's
4: hard to keep up with all of the <laughs> all the
0: you know critical
4: race theory uh attempted bans sure. and you know it's hard to keep up and Wisconsin's a really interesting state um and I just arrived back here 2 years ago that is at, at, at odds with sort of each other this this state that was at the vanguard of, of progressive politics that is now ground zero for mm-hmm. um you know eroded democracy and i say that because of the gerrymandering other things like that wisconsin um is is the home in fact of one of the first abortion funds if not the first abortion fund in the united states and yet has these really restrictive laws. So some of the work that I do now is on national mandatory waiting periods. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that abortion is restricted is not by outright bans, um, it's, all, it's by making people wait. And those mm-hmm. waits are disproportionately felt among people that are, are historically and content in, in marginalized and marginalized in contemporary times, black and brown uh, pregnant people, people that are poor, people that are LGBT, et cetera. And so people that with money will never have a problem getting an abortion. However, if you're here, I can't remember exactly how long the the wait is for here. I want to say it's either 24 or 48 hours off the top of my head, but it's not really 24 or 48 hours, especially because for certain types of abortions, you have to see the same provider. And the same providers do not necessarily work (laughs) every Mm -hmm. weekend at the same facility. So what looks like a 24, 48, 72 hour ban on paper is actually not that type of ban. It actually is a much longer ban. That um, coupled with the fact that the resources to access any kind of family planning care are not equally distributed across the state, we have, we have a huge problem with access to care. And, and that coupled with the fact that many of our, I guess I'll get in trouble here, but this is the truth, we have, very, we have a lot of uh, Catholic run hospital systems and we know mm-hmm. that those places um, are disproportionately serve black and brown pregnant people and they do not provide a comprehensive suite of reproductive healthcare services. So it's, it's a, there's a lot going on here. I'm glad that we have our collaborative on reproductive equity that is working on these issues, but I can tell you it is, it is really challenging and really difficult time be here in wisconsin and to be a pregnant person in lots of other states including texas as as lena said
1: yeah it's kind of an interesting thing that's the same on the ground i've only just recently moved to kind of st louis and also just became aware that like a lot of kind of like the health services for black and brown folks is run through kind of like catholic institutions then we could probably do a whole podcast on like how that came to happen and why mm-hmm. that's kind of still a persistent feature, but it was just one of the more striking things about hitting the ground in Missouri. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. yeah one, this is like a very tangential, but um, uh, like asylum and refugee services are also run a lot through these like Christian and Catholic and religious networks, which- yes. Um, Tiffany and Lena, I know like both of you work a little bit like on immigration stuff. Like that's also another podcast episode, but it's just really interesting you know. <laughs>
3: we'll have to come back and do yeah. that. <laughs> Lena and Tiffany part two and three. Cause I think that I think the issue with with Catholic run healthcare is a Midwestern phenomenon mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. really wow. taking over and you know, from personal experience, I I had to do an emergency health thing and I ended up at a Catholic hospital and their first initial reaction was like, oh, it's clearly your IUD that's causing you this pain. Like, let's take it out. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And having those kinds of, I ended up talking to the ob guy who works there and we had a very secretive conversation about the kinds of care that they try to provide to people. Mm -hmm all like i mean there was recently an article um that came out maybe early last year about catholic hospitals in iowa that were um, under the radar providing contraception to folks Mm -hmm. in like an auxiliary closet right um this is like this is like some local newspaper that did this kind of so so catholic um care and the fact that it's it's taking over Midwest um, health care is absolutely frightening.
0: Yeah, Oof, so I'm going to go down.
4: yeah, yes, so a whole nother conversation. And I wanted to just highlight and maybe you could include it in the show notes, some work that's being done um, by some folks here at CORE, led by Renee Kramer, that talks exactly about this thing, mm-hmm. how how this access to contraceptive care and abortion is really um, conditioned by the presence of these Catholic hospital systems
1: super interesting thanks for that link in the notes I don't know if we have show notes honestly but we can make show notes so <laughs> we can plug it on the book bl- yeah, on the yeah. Blog, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> okay right, so moving on to the shifting gears just a little bit and excuse me for the pronunciation and um, I'm going to have two experts that are going to let finally finally tell me how to pronounce this but the gookmuk their Institute yeah. okay so head shaken thank you. all right well the institute did an analysis of kind of state abortion rights and found that in two, uh, 2021 107 abortion restrictions were enacted across 19 states, which is more than any other year kind of since 1973. I don't know much about 1973 but I'm assuming it was a very very conservative time in American history which is kind of makes this striking. Now, abortion restrictions have been creeping up for years, but it really, really seems like 2021 was this kind of like boiling over point uh, kind of year and kind of at least recent history. And can you give us a little bit of context of why that is? Like, was it by design? Did that intersect with COVID in any particular way? Curious to hear your thoughts about what made that year such a turning point. So, yeah, I
4: think I think COVID likely did have a lot to do with. It. And I'm really curious to see what Lena has to say. But, you know, when you have times of crisis, and uh, we could argue that a pandemic is the ultimate crisis. Uh, right? It provides a window, a, a window of opportunity for people who would like to implement these restrictions into law. And I think that's what happens. And it also depends on the composition of the legislature. This is not about being partisan or, or it is partisan but it's uh, but it, this is how politics works if you have the right legislature at the right time you know waiting to be able to implement these restrictions when we saw that uh, other med- medical uh, procedures were being restricted because of covid it provided an excuse mm-hmm. to be able to restrict procedures like abortion mm-hmm. right and that's and i think that's part of the reason why we saw what we saw mm-hmm.
3: So I would I would say that 1973, in fact, was not was not necessarily conservative. Right. I think they use the 1973 because that's when Roe v. Wade, you know, that's that that's when the Supreme Court overturned sort of access to abortion. So so since it, since abortion became accessible. Right. Sort of the main the, the next main law that came up was the Hyde Amendment, right, where you know, conservatives sort of rush to curtail access to abortion, right? Suggesting that the state would not support, um, you know, would not pay for, for people's access to abortion. So, this, so in some ways, right, as, as activists who have been in the game for a really long time um, say, that access to abortion has always been conditional and, um, and access um, for people of color has always been difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Tiffany said it very, very well, right? That, 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 that this is happening because they have played, and by they, I mean the anti-abortion movement, right? Um, have played the, this exceptional long game um, of really just every year chipping away at, at putting forward laws that, you know, 10 years ago, people were like, this is nuts. This is never gonna happen. They're never gonna defund Planned Parenthood. And they just kept on pushing until state by state they've got started to defund Planned Parenthood. Right. Even though Planned Parenthood is sort of has played a later, uh, you know, a a, um, more central role in the movement um, for abortion care later on. Right. They they were not part of the early uh, Mm. late 1960s, 1970s supportive of abortion care. They they jumped on the bandwagon later on. and so I think what COVID did was one fe- federal law changed so that people could have access to abortion medication, right? So you could do telehealth for abortion, which was revolutionary. And again, if you listen to activists, they will say, this has been so helpful that the federal government has said, we can do use telehealth in order to, to help people use medication abortion. But again, medication abortion has a small window. You can't, you know, it's like uh, up to 12 weeks, right? Um, and so it sort of, it, it 2021, um, and I would say 2020 uh, have been, you know, just the perfect storm of like conservative legislative access, right? So I live in Iowa now and they have dominated, you know, all houses and the governorship, right? And so um, the Supreme Court in Iowa in 2018, um, said that the that the Iowa Supreme, that excuse me, the Iowa Constitution guarantees a person's right to access to an abortion and this was a huge hit mm-hmm. to the anti-abortion movement. And so what they've done now is that now they're mobilizing to change the Iowa Constitution to add an amendment to the Iowa Constitution that denies people access to abortion. And this takes several years and people in the state at first were like, this is nuts. this is never going to happen. But again like, they just keep chipping away. Um, and I think that that's what you know they've done in Texas, that's what they've done in Mississippi, in Alabama, right? Um, if you look at maps, places like Illinois have become the like tiny bastions of still having relative access to abortion um, when compared to places like Missouri, Iowa, Wisconsin, right? Um, but, but it just happened at 2021, at sort of the peak of the pandemic, we see these things come together. Yeah. It's just like, for lack of a better word, like sucks.
0: Like, really, you got to do this (laughs) now? (laughs) So many people are already like having such a hard time. Like, I cannot imagine being, you know, like in college and like a pregnant person and like trying, living in Texas and try, like, you know, trying to figure out like, what am I going to do, right? I can't even imagine what that feels like right now. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's it's kind of, uh, oh, Tiffany, were you gonna say something?
4: Oh, I was just gonna say that um, I had to look it up because my brain is not working the way it needs to. But mm-hmm. um, a, a really important point that I think IAPHS folks need to understand is that real, that intersection between access to abortion and poverty.
3: Mm-hmm. and that
4: also is coming from the law. So in um, Harris versus McRae, this was this in this decision, the Supreme Court said the government doesn't have a responsibility to, to address barriers. Um, to abortion because of poverty, because it's not of its own creation. I'm like, who else created it, <laughs> right? And then we're like, this is ridiculous, right? Most of, most of us know what the evidence looks like, but that was the decision that was made. And so all of these barriers that states are putting up to keep pregnant people from accessing abortion, you know, part of that, and they're mostly poor, right? Mm. Yeah. Right, does it matter. So I think it's really important to understand like this very complicated legal. uh, (laughs) These these legal decisions have very direct implications for the populations that we study and the things that we care about, including structural poverty and structural Mm -hmm. discrimination. Yeah.
2: Yeah, this is all very fascinating and and very outside of my my area, although limited (laughs) expertise. But I'm really curious, Lenny, you have a a book project that's out, um, and you talk about the weaponization of abortion and birth control in a way that, particularly for me and people like me, scholars like me, are not used to. So you write about the history of reproductive rights, and as Tiffany mentioned, and you've alluded to as well, it's this long game, it's this very strategic, intentional long gay where game where you're you're chipping away a certain thing. So I'm I'm really curious too about um how this affected people um in places like Texas along the border and how maybe people have used this um this restriction of access to things like birth control is like a is a, a way of population control. So any way that you can speak to that.
3: Absolutely and thank you Daryl that so yes, that's you know, my book is looking at the history of of reproductive health and activism in the U.S.-Mexico border region. So from you know the the start of the 20th century into into the 2000s, um, and. And it's actually really fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm finishing it up right now. It, I just signed a contract with UNC Press, so forthcoming. <laughs> Thank you. Sometime, and you know, hopefully at the end of COVID, we can all celebrate. Um, or, andish. I'll put that in quotes with COVID. Um, but you know, it the history of 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 contraception really. Um, and the movement for contraception has taken so many twists and turns. And it's really fascinating and unfortunate that um, some of the wealthiest people in the world um, were able to sort of um, uh, usurp the narrative of liberation, right? So if we think back to the early 20th century, it was people like Emma Goldman, so like anarchists, who were um, talking about the workers' access to birth control you know to contraception as a means to really take over the means of production right so mm-hmm. the means of reproduction and emma goldman is like this is how we're going to bring down the sort of masters of industry is when women have control over their reproduction mm-hmm. and she meets this like really uh engaging um, uh, activist by the name of Margaret Sanger in these like bohemian salons in New York. And she says, you are the perfect person, because uh, Margaret Sanger was a nurse, you're the perfect person to take this on. But of course, you know, a lot of these conversations are mired in eugenics um, mm-hmm. and sort of racial betterment, uh, um, uh, pseudoscience. And Margaret Sanger, because funding, there's a, a funding a plenty in these circles, sort of aligns herself with this ideology right and just recently plant parenthood who she helped um establish right has come forward to try to grapple with this eugenic eugenic history and we see that history in places like the us-mexico border in the us south in in the west right in california um uh, at the confluence of of sort of um increasing migrant populations right non-white migrant populations um and and really these like tensions between you know what one scholar has called like choice and coercion, right? Mm-hmm. So access to um, a potentially liberatory tool like contraception, um, and the fact that the people that are pushing this liberatory tool are some of the wealthiest uh, uh, people in these communities, right? So that's what I'm looking at in in El Paso, and then when when I when you move the sort of the lens to the end of of the 20th century i'm looking at at mexico at northern mexico and the creation of maquiladoras, so sweatshops right and this is you know uh the predates nafta but it's all about neoliberalism sort of the creation of neoliberalism and you see you know one of the wealthiest women in ciudad juarez which is the sister city to el paso texas where the maquiladora system was born um, and she becomes, she's she's the wife to one of the founders of the Maquiladora system. She becomes the new Margaret Singer. And in fact, in 1985, Planned Parenthood gives her the Margaret Singer Award for her work in population control, right? Um, and, and here is um, this idea that started out, right? That it was about workers, about the people on the sort of lowest, rung of the social economic spectrum having control over their bodies and 100 years later um, it is those industrialists who seek to control their workers via reproduction right Mm -hmm. and so i think that for me that history um, is one that needs to to be exposed right It, it you know to um to tiffany's point um that this is about how poverty is constructed I um, mean, even when people are, are um, have access to these liberatory tools, um, somehow um, the elite are able to wield those tools um, to their benefit. Right. Um, so that that's that's part of that's part of the sort of trajectory of my thinking on. on my book. Super dope.
0: I love historians. You guys just weave. Yep. It's just beautiful. I know. You oh you in particular. You know, weave such a really good <laughs> <beautiful> narrative. <laughs> I am I
4: the only one who's upset. I thought the book was out and I was ready to get one. Like,
0: oh. <laughs> 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 and start ordering and then no, she's I'm like sad.
3: no it's not done. No, right. oh. I'm, typing, I'm typing I'm working as hard as I can. <laughs> it,
0: it sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. it will be a good <laughs> book. Yeah, yeah.
2: definitely looking forward to. To, to see that we'll definitely make sure we put in the, the appropriate notes uh show notes section like when it's time right <laughs>
0: yeah here's a link yeah yeah um oh man that history is so fascinating because it's just like it's all good right all birth control is good give people a ton of, but it's like how it's been used as a tool right for not so good things is, is mm. also really interesting and you know tiffany an interesting parallel is like some of your work also contests like These messages that we get but like these are the things that are good for women to do right in terms of reproductive health um, you know some of these top down strategies that are always pushed onto women or providers so you write about things like implicit bias training and like what are the limitations of that and breast is best right which are which is pushed onto women to um you know so they can have healthy babies um to address maternal and child health inequities um, but can you tell us, you know, where are we missing the link um, and what your research shows about the complex drivers of, of reproductive health disparities and inequities, and what we really need to be thinking about if we really want to address these challenges? Um, you know, I just read Biden announced his like maternal and child health thing, and I read it, and he has implicit bias in there, right, like funding for that. So, you know, what should we really be thinking about?
4: yeah. Um, and, and so I guess this is a point, I don't have to convince anybody listening to this podcast that interdisciplinary research matters. And mm. yeah, I'm an economist by training and we're kind of contrary, as most of you know. And you know, when I started looking at what the evidence base was for breastfeeding, I want to be and chest feeding, I want to be clear, I am very supportive of those things for people that want to do them. Mm. But when we start getting into this idea that these are the solutions for the racial inequities that we face focusing mm-hmm. on these individual behaviors that's not where the evidence is you know we know that that breastfeeding is certainly correlated with a, um, a decrease in, um, in poor respiratory systems um, uh, symptoms in early life We know that especially for preterm babies breastfeeding is, is very important if that can be if they can access breast milk um, and it's a good thing for other reasons but It only is free if you don't care about lactating people's time, Mm -hmm. right? It's not free. And when we start getting into conversations like uh, with Black Breastfeeding Week, oh, I'm going to get in trouble on this podcast, but it's not that I'm opposed to Black Breastfeeding Week. But when you start having language like breastfeeding would narrow these Black, white infant mortality gaps and Mm -hmm. you're a mother or a person that has lost a child, Mm -hmm. how does that make you feel? and and how does that make me feel especially given the evidence or lack thereof for breastfeeding as like the holy grail it's not that it's not a good thing it is a very good thing it certainly has some benefits but i think we overstate the benefits and i think we we understate the costs and that's a problem and it really takes away from the systemic issues that why don't people breastfeed i'm more interested in why they can't breastfeed if they want to if we don't have paid paternity leave and paid maternity leave. We know that those things are correlated or, or causally related to higher levels of breastfeeding, but we're worried about changing people's individual level behavior. Similarly, when we talk about implicit and explicit bias training, yeah, I work very closely um, with Dr. Uh, Nao She's a brilliant social psychologist at my former institution, BCU. And so we start talking about implicit bias training, which she studies and she was like, you know, um, there's no, long-term evidence. So I start looking and I'm like, are we, are we being scammed? <laughs> because, you know, all of our institutions are really obsessed with providing this implicit bias training, but it's hard to change human behavior. Mm-hmm. We see the diet industry, we see the exercise industry. They make money because we're always starting and re- uh, restarting our attempts to exercise and eat in a certain way, right? So we should know a priori, it's hard to change human behavior. How much harder is it then to change these deeply held biases and these prejudices that we have, right? And when I started looking at the evidence, I said, wait a second, (laughs) right? And then for me, the next step, right, is I want to know what the evidence is. Is there evidence linking implicit prejudice to the disparities we're seeing in labor and delivery and outcomes? And so far, we don't really have it. Mm. And it's not that I think that racism doesn't matter, it's not that I think the stereotyping doesn't matter, it's that we have not made those links. And so we're implementing all these policies to to implementing implicit bias training, and we don't have the evidence, right? And so I have a problem with that, given that resources are scarce and our wants are unlimited, right? Mm. And so what can we do? We do have good evidence that there are these systemic things, the segregation, this lack of access to resources that segregation shapes is very tightly linked to these adverse outcomes, right? But, but that requires work. That requires acknowledging that these systemic things that, that have been driven by structural inequality, uh, racism, all those things, we have the evidence, right? This is not just what we're saying. Um, it requires us to address them and not focus on individual level behavior. And that's really hard. And I think we don't want to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And So that's why, <laughs> that's why I really um, am very interested in trying to understand how these systemic issues are driving the disparities that we see. Because when we start blaming Black folks for yeah. having these disparate outcomes, as if, as if the behaviors of mothers and other birthing people are driving these outcomes, that's when I have a problem because the evidence is not there and it also denies the humanity of black people Mm -hmm. and so that's I'm sorry that's my prior black people are human Mm -hmm. right so that's my problem with all the top down stuff in particular in a state which which fights for the top spot to have the the highest black infant mortality rates in the country sorry not sorry
1: (laughs) Tiffany where does this top down stuff come from I mean I guess like Underneath it all, right, it's like, I understand that, like, um, you know, structural kind of solutions, there's no will for them, like, among the general public, just because, of, like you said, it's hard and people are like, we don't want to do hard things, let's kind of put the blame off onto, like, individuals. But still, how does that get justified kind of among otherwise reasonable people and a complete lack of evidence for it, right? Like, how do you even start to make those sorts of arguments or does anybody kind of even approach making those arguments when there's just like no evidence for breast or which I just heard about now, or is implicit bias traded? Like, how does that still stick around?
4: You know, I'm not a psychologist, but the psychologist would probably say that, you know, once the idea takes hold, it's it's hard to, like, let wrestle that idea loose. Mm -hmm. And I have really pushed back um, against this idea that implicit bias training, like this this individual level behavior is going to change things. I, I would also say that I am a huge fan of Keith Payne at UNC. Um, Who's taken taking some pushback from his own colleagues, I think, in the work that he does, like characterizing implicit bias as not just this individ- individual level marker, but a marker of how our brains collectively respond to the environments that we live in. So you live in a place that's more segregated, where Black people are more likely to be arrested, where they're more likely to be poor, then it's easy for your brain to say, hey, well, Black people must be X, Y, and Z. Um, Black and or Latinx people are, are, are this, you know, so, so I think it's really, really important to grapple with how our brains respond to the structured inequality that's in our environments and how that triggers our brains to behave in certain ways. So I'm mm-hmm. less interested in, in trying to fix people's um, biases by training and, and more interested in how we can structure environments to make it easier for people to be less racist. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly, yeah. Important work for sure. <laughs> um, okay, speaking of like kind of weird messaging and feeling triggered by different things, um, there's at the moment kind of like um really weird messaging going around that, that reads like Black pre-born lives matter or unborn lives matter, I like how the right just tries to like put life's matter at the end of anything, <laughs> political statement, right? But anyway, um, it, you know, it obviously kind of co-ops like some important work that's being done on racial inequality and just fundamentally distorts kind of reproductive justice frameworks. Could you both talk a little bit more about kind of like what reproductive justice really means in your work um, especially, kind of like what these people trying to kind of like distort it, and then also how you grapple with structural racism as it relates to reproductive health.
3: Um. Oh, Tiffany, do you want to go first? No, Lena, you first. go ahead. I well, I mean, I think I, I guess I I love Tiffany's point about like we need to just like are we going to change individual people from st- you know stopping from being racist likely not but can we put up guardrails? like can we put up policies that right where that we understand um uh at least curtail uh the violence of racism right yes we absolutely can um and and to your point of co opting i mean this is the co-opting of language right is also quite violent um and they're and they're doing it for so many things right so it's not just um a- a- about reproduction but right like that the um not wanting to use masks, uh, mm-hmm. anti-vaxing, right? All of this is my body, my choice. All yeah. of, I mean, and they're just like, you know, it, it it's it's overwhelming. And I, I remember, and that my body, my choice, to be, um, you know, historically accurate when it comes to the anti-vax movement. This was well before COVID, because um, I teach classes on on the history of global reproduction, and I and I used these mothers um, in California. Uh, who were refusing to vaccinate their kids against measles um in like 2015 2014 2015 right so this like anti-vax thing has been going on for a while um, and it's it's a it's um it's a corruption of like civil rights uh, movement and, and social justice movement activism really is what it is because the majority of the people that are um behind these um behind these so-called uh um you know uh anti-abortion uh, movements and anti-vax and, and anti-science, quite honestly, um, movements are are connected in many ways to, to white nationalists and white power organizations, mm-hmm. right? So they don't fundamentally care about yeah. black and brown people. Right. Um, and that's not why they're saying what they're saying. They're saying that as a means to, uh, and, and, and the, again, there's a long history to this um, in the anti-abortion movement, back to back to the 1980s um, but a, a, a means to sort of pull at the heartstrings of communities of color right to say um hmm. we are the ones that really care right the anti-abortion movement we're the ones that really care because these people want to kill your children right um, but they're not out there supporting uh, social safety nets they're not out there supporting equal access to education they're not out, there, right? Like, in fact, they're they're the ones that um, I was talking to a friend of mine about this today. They're the ones that are lobbying, right, to get rid of extension of unemployment benefits, right, that that disproportionately support um, Black and Brown people. Um, they're out there trying to deny um, access to, to to Medicare Medicare for all, right? Like things that would truly uplift and support um, historically marginalized communities. Um, they are opposed to so again to get back to to tiffany's point about the sort of individualizing Mm -hmm. of of these things right that um, that is a that is a fundamental core ideology of white supremacy Mm. right it's in many ways it's this idea that um, that each of us as individuals is responsible for ourselves right that the government and the state should not be involved unless it's the government and the state supporting Christian nationalism, right? <laughs> supporting mm-hmm. the denial of access to reproductive care. Um, and so like these kinds of conversations that are um, are meant to be tricky, like they're meant to sort of confuse um, people, right? I, I think for me, it's been critical sort of showing students when I'm teaching like the trajectory of these ideas right. and how over time they've sort of been um, co-opted Um, by these groups that fundamentally, if they did care about Black life, if they did care about Latinas and Native peoples, um, that they would come forward for some of these other things that we actually do have statistics that show that support these communities. Yeah. So all of that,
4: um, and I will also say that it's important to, to understand that the reproductive justice movement was formed from a coalition of uh, black women and other women of color, right? It has always been this interracial coalition of women of color um, that have have pushed back. But the the, the first um, the first work that has was done around this area was really in opposition, not in opposition, but sort of calling out the the you know feminist movements that were talking about access to abortion, and it was really like, okay, that's good and. Mm-hmm. We have a right to not be poor. We have a right to raise our children in, the, in safe circumstances. We have a right to access medical care. So, so this idea of universal health care is not some new thing that came along with the 2016 election. Yeah, I said it, right? It came in, in the reproductive justice movement. That was a part of the conversation about people's rights, right? Mm-hmm. And Black women and other women of color we're talking about this and, and talking about abortion as a right, but also talking about the right to not be in poverty, right? Mm-hmm. To, not, to not, uh, not want, right? And so that, I think that's important to understand. And, you know, I really have been doing work on uh, reproductive health outcomes for a long time. I used to be a clinic escort when I lived um, in, mm-hmm. my, in my former state. But I think really moving into this particular position, which was a reproductive equity position, started really shaping my, my research itself. And when I say, I say that to say that it made me start rethinking what I had been taught. For mm-hmm. example, oh, well, um, our, our women, and we know other people, people other than women, need access to birth control, right? But I never asked the question, um, what kind of birth control do they need? do they actually want it i asked a little bit of that when i was in outside meetings but in my research i'm like well un- unintended pregnancy what does that mean yeah. who came up with that yeah you know and so i think reproductive justice has always been a part of my ethos but in terms of really pushing my research forward and forcing me to confront the ideas that i that i had been brought up with that we're trained with yeah. right I think in the last couple of years that, you know, reproductive justice has really much shaped my work. And I want to emphasize that, you know, people listening to this will be like, oh, well, you know, they're political. No, I'm talking about the evidence, right? I like receipts. And we know, (laughs) you know, we know that that autonomy, bodily autonomy is something that matters. We know that understanding the structural drivers of these things matters. So for me, while reproductive justice was part of my other life, right? It has really come to inform my scholarship. And I think it's so much better. It's so much more rigorous and robust because I have tried to understand and grapple with these ideas. So it means that with my newest work, I don't talk about the effects of policies on women. I talk about the policies of, of, you know, the effect of these policies on birthing people because that is accurate. Right, mm-hmm. that is, that, that's the science, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think reproductive justice has um, played a huge role in taking my science and my scholarship to the next level, right? And I think we need to understand that this is not just about social justice, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's also about doing rigorous interdisciplinary science. Mm-hmm. And it's also about acknowledging the black and, and other women of color that founded this movement and not co-opting that so you can get a pub. It means mm-hmm. getting it right. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Reproductive justice has been huge for me.
3: Yeah, and so. I'll, I'll just quickly add that what you know I think to Tiffany's point, right? Like reproductive justice and and SisterSong, which is the organization that that um, you know sort of brought you know created this coalition, this multiracial, multiethnic coalition came around during the Clinton administration, right? And they came together as two, in order to push the Clinton administration into really addressing issues of, of healthcare and other kinds of places where, um, you know, as Tiffany said, right? Poverty and lack of access to various opportunities, right? continue to keep people in poverty. And so when people say like, oh, this is political, it's like, well, oh, these conversations are always political. But what I think people are trying to say is, oh, you're being partisan. It's like, no, no, Mm -hmm. reproductive justice will attack all parties and all administrations that are not thinking about centering justice within the framework of their policies and legislation. Right. So, so you know, I think a lot of people use like, for instance, the Reagan administration as sort of this beacon and this, you know, and it was certainly of sort of, um, of sort of centering neoliberal policies, right? But there is a really tight connection between the Reagan administration and the Clinton administration, right? Um, And to deny the, um, you know, the violence that the Clinton administration did to communities of color Um, really is to not understand the sort of historical background of this movement so you know i think people need to understand that this is always inherently political um but it's not necessarily partisan right that it's not that it's not been always one political party against or in favor of right but that both political parties have been supporting neoliberal policies that have done damage um, to communities of color in the United States. Yeah, I'll
0: just say we're, we're tight on time, but I will say like, this has been such an illuminating conversation and even doing the prep for the podcast because I was a little hesitant, you know, I work on race and I was like, I don't know anything about reproductive health and reproductive justice and, Um you know, I wonder, right, like, I almost feel like I don't have a skin in this game, because I'm like, I care about race, you know, and I think thinking about a reproductive justice framework is like, no, like we bring you in, because if you care about structural racism and opportunity and poverty, it is central to like what we're arguing about, it's not just like abortion access or contraceptives, right, which I think, if you follow sort of the, what is it the pink hats and the the Planned Parenthood stuff, right? It's just this like, um, it's very like, right? It's very, it's very white feminism, which people talked about for a long time, but it didn't really click for me until literally last night when I was like scrolling through this stuff, right. Instagram, <laughs> like, oh, this is things I care about. And this is a framing that I use in my own work. It's just sort of like a different, different side of the same coin. So For all you race scholars out there, like we should jump on the bad wagon because it is part and parcel to our fight too.
1: It's healthcare, it's it's just healthcare, right? And so like the fact that people can draw such strong lines between it, right? It's something that's, you know, kind of, I'm sure that both Tiffany and Lena can tell us much more about that, but it's all, it's like one of the more bizarre aspects about how people engage with kind of uh, abortion rights and abortion access. Yeah.
4: And honestly, I think the the reproductive health and our equity comu- community needs to do a lot more work to engage with race scholars. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. not it's not something that you can feel that you are completely out of the loop on because some of the things that I
0: read, oh. yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I think that um, in the interest of time, we just want to add ask if you have any. We've talked a lot about sort of the downsides, this this historical legacy, this manifest and contemporary outcomes and inequities and lots of work to do. So for each one of you, if you can just give our listeners just sort of like some parting words of hope, glimmers of light, if you will, in this wintry weather that we're all experiencing in the middle of the country here, Um, any any words of wisdom and any one of you can start.
3: <laughs> <Where> I'm like <laughs> it's hard to make eye contact. I'm like, <laughs> okay. um, All right, I'll, I'll bring the heat in all okay. this cold. It's negative 15 here in Iowa. So, um, for me, one of the things that's wonderful and exciting is um, just seeing the work that people are doing on the ground every day, all the time. Um, You know, I've been asked on numerous interviews. uh, So what do we do when when Roe v. Wade is gone, for instance? i say the same thing people have always done, right? Um, Which is create networks of solidarity, right? And they already exist. There's tons of abortion funds, right? Tiffany started off talking about um, Wisconsin having one of the first abortion funds and now they they sort of proliferate and there's like mega abortion funds and, right? And smaller funds and one of the sort of, fundamental things about the work that, I, that I'm looking at in my book is, you know, how some of these smaller clinics and organizations that were truly like came out of community organizing have stayed like open and working and providing care for their community because the community itself built them. Right. And so um, that's one of the things that I that I love to see. So right now, at least here in Iowa, I have a colleague that's like working with um, a bond uh, organization, a nonprofit bond organization that helps pay bonds for activists and for people caught in the detention. Right. Criminal justice or injustice system Um, and that. is centering reproductive justice as its sort of mission, right? The idea that we need to keep families together, mm. um, and and like that, they're just like a scrappy group of like students and undocumented folks, and like some folks, academics from the university, like putting this together, as well as like the burgeoning midwifery um, movement, uh, specifically centered in communities of color, right? Um, and, and the training of midwives of color to make sure that communities of color are getting the birthing experiences and the joy and the, you know, like that, they're, that, 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 we, that we want to have um, not in a hospital sort of setting where um, medical racism runs rampant, right? so those are the things that for me give me the most excitement and joy as we sort of stare down the barrel of this like handmaid's tale future um even in the handmaid's tale people resisted right and people created collectives um to find ways to survive and that's just what we're going to keep doing
4: speaking of the handmaid's tale i want to to acknowledge you know, that The Handmaid's Tale in many ways was inspired by enslaved women, mm. enslaved black women. Mm. And as I, I prepare to teach my first class in race, in, in U.S. ob right? I, I read these stories and I read these narratives and it's tempting to kind of just get stuck in the muck. Like this is, this is horror, this is, this is sexual assault, this is beating, this is death, there are all these things. But I have to find spaces for joy. I have to find spaces for resistance. And people did. There were so many women that said, you know, I'm gonna resist. There were women that that decided that they were not gonna carry a pregnancy to term in the middle of slavery. There are many women that strapped their children to them and ran, right? And so I think about those narratives and I think about you know, yes, we're not living in in times of slavery now, technically, right? But we are living in a time where people are seeking to to rob us of of our essential rights, right? But I think that people have, Black women and Black burden people, other people, have always resisted. And I think it's that resistance against people that would take away bodily autonomy, one of our most intrinsic rights as humans, Um, And I I am convinced that people will keep resisting, people will keep finding joy. And I know that sounds very um, woo-woo from an economist, but I think the (laughs) historical record, I'm just checking in, Lita, I think that supports what I'm saying, that people will continue to find joy and they will continue to fight for autonomy, even in the face of of what seems like um, no way out. And I firmly believe that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Ooh, this is a good one. I, think. <laughs> I feel fired up, you know? <laughs> well, thank you both for joining us for really a fantastic episode. Um, we learned, I learned a lot. I don't know. I, I, I think I can speak for my co-host okay. too. Um, it was just such a pleasure having you both on and your, both of your like different and overlapping perspectives. Um Lena, best of luck finishing up that book. We are all having Thank it on pre-order. Thank you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so stressful, I tell you, writing in the time of like, I, and that's part of the book is like writing in, the, in this time of precarity. And so, I, I mean, the last question about where do you find the motivation? Yeah, like, you know, knowing that Tiffany's doing the work that she's doing um, is is hugely motivating to me, knowing that there are Latinas and Chicanas um, right now, like in El Paso, who are doing ridiculous, amazing work, um, funneling folks, medication, abortion, pills (laughs) across the border. Like, that's radical work. That's what keeps me going. So thank you all for for doing this and having me on it
4: for having me I love a podcast so yeah was it easy,
0: <laughs> easy yes for me <laughs> for sure <laughs> well good luck Tiffany keep killing it up there everybody stay warm and thank you all for joining us for another episode we'll see you next time
3: thank you thank you, thank yeah. you.